0: You're listening to the Unsiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Amy Edmondson, who is a professor at the Harvard Business School and also the author of a couple books. The most recent book is called right kind of wrong, The Science of Failing Well, which is in many ways an elaboration on the themes that you uh, wrote about in The Fearless Organization, which is subtitled Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Now, of course, this term psychological safety has penetrated far and wide into the discourse of business. And we'll talk a bit about kind of maybe you know, uses and abuses of that term. But this book, Right, Kind of Wrong, I mean, in many ways, what you're doing is you're setting up almost a taxonomy of failure, almost like a encyclopedia of failure, a guidebook <laughs> to failure. And, you know, here in Silicon Valley, we love to talk about failure, right? Fail fast, fail better. And there's an entire kind of failure industry that has arisen. And, you know, in many ways, it's not terribly academically respectable, and it's not terribly well thought through. And it sometimes just seems like a exercise in affirmation. And so I was really glad that you were able to put some teeth around this concept. And you know, you're not saying that failing is always good, right? I mean, in fact, most of the book is really about how to avoid failure. Right. and so so I think I, that was the part that I, I really liked. And so you know, I think, When you say the right kind of wrong, it also implies that there's a whole lot of wrong ways to be wrong. Wrong And, and, And you talk about the difference. So the other thing I didn't realize, I didn't realize the extent to which this whole line of thought originated in your PhD work, right? And the kind of origin story of this work in psychological safety goes back to that moment. So I was wondering if you could... Maybe start off by just recounting that story, because it's so fantastic.
1: Sure, you're absolutely right. And maybe not to put too fine a point on it, but all of this work, for me anyway, was born of a failure, right? It was born of a failed effort to support a hypothesis. Now, the hypothesis was pretty straightforward. So I was invited to participate in a medical team of people who were quite interested in the newly discovered shall we say phenomenon of medical errors so this was in the early 90s and this was really the first time experts were starting to talk about the fact that like it or not day in and day out in you know hospitals or around the world people were getting hurt by what they at least assumed in some cases to be preventable errors and so it became a, a kind of a topic of of study and I was invited in, I knew nothing about medicine or nothing about hospitals, really, but I was invited in to help address a sort of subset of this issue, which is do better teams, does better teamwork contribute to lowering error rates, right? It's a logical hypothesis. It's a logical assumption. It was born out of work that had been done in aviation that had shown a very clear relationship between better teamwork in the cockpit and fewer aviation failures. So, so far, so good. And I had a well-established, robust survey to work with that was able to measure team properties of people in workplaces. I started with that. I, you know, felt pretty confident about the validity of that survey. I did that in month one of a six-month study. Meanwhile, trained nurse investigators were, were making sort of daily or every other daily visits to these teams to collect data on the errors, right? All I had to do was wait and be patient and then run the correlation between my team attributes and their error rates.
0: Now, now the key thing is that you did not have a, a sort of a ground truth for error rate, right?
1: Well, we we, we know. We, we didn't know that going in, right? Otherwise, yeah. we wouldn't have done it that way, right? So there right. was the assumption that, because there's a big study, NIH funded, all the rest, that people who were on board with with what the study was doing and would be kind of accurately reporting their errors well you know when you step back and think about it that's not necessarily the best assumption right that that would be easy uh, to do what's more interesting is that it may be, not only is that not easy to do, but that it's easier for some people than others. Now, I think we look back on this now, that's 30 years ago, and say, well, of course, right? Of course, it's easier in some groups than others, because we now understand very deeply that groups can vary in their sort of interpersonal climate, as it were, right? The openness, the the willingness to speak up, the willingness to take risks, like admitting an error or asking for help when you don't know what to do. Right? We now we now recognize that as something that can vary across groups you know, at work, but but at the time there was a rather naive assumption that error rates would be reasonably easy to measure in the context of formal research, um, and that you know my little part, which was you know hands off, people fill out a survey, I get the data, and then I'm just simply going to connect my data to the error data, and look for a relationship. And indeed, there was a relationship. Unfortunately, it was in the wrong direction. At the data, my my teamwork data, sort of saying the better teams, better-led teams, had higher, not lower, error rates. And so that was, um, you know, disappointing understates it. I thought I was going to have to drop out of school, right? I mean, that's a little, little bit of a naive uh, thing to think, but it was how i felt at the moment right but the insight that came out of this study unexpectedly was that in fact even in organizations with very strong corporate cultures the climate across groups can vary substantially like just the simple degree to which people feel okay speaking up candidly with truthful statements or concerns varies a lot and that I later called psychological safety. And now, now we have a, you know, big and robust literature showing all sorts of positive outcomes of having that kind of psychological safety, that kind of permission for candor in your team is a good thing. But then it was just a failed study, right, where I, cu- I could not make the same claim that had been shown, especially in simulators in aviation that, you know, better teamwork led to lower errors as teams. But I could say at least there was a possibility that this climate factor mattered and maybe future research could look into it, which indeed I then spent quite a bit of time uh, doing. You know, there's a lot going on in that story. And one of the things going on in that story is this kind of interest in error, right? And the Silicon Valley mantra, you know, fail fast, fail often, at least it honors the spirit of something very important well, two things. One is, of course, in new territory, you've got to try stuff that might not work. But the other is you've got to learn, and you've got to learn fast, and you've got to keep learning. And errors and failures, which I do not believe are synonymous, but errors and failures are really rich territory for learning. Unfortunately, we don't often do it very well, right? There's, there's a whole lot of room for improvement there.
0: Well, I mean, part of the book is not just about kind of organizational failure, right? But it's also at the individual level. So setting aside the organizational context, I mean, as as individuals, we are not only risk-averse, but also unwilling to acknowledge and confront error. We have a bias that leads us to ignore negative feedback and glory in positive feedback. And I've asked this question of a number of other researchers, it doesn't seem functional, right? I mean, it seems like it's antithetical to the kind of learning that you would need to survive in, in a social environment, or not even in a social environment, but in a, you know, you're on a desert island, right? Right, right. So how do we explain that? You're, I've never really gotten a good explanation. I mean, I know there's this idea of like, it's ego-threatening, but that's just, a, that sort of seems like a redescription of the phenomenon rather than an explanation.
1: No, I think it's that we can get away with it, um, mm-hmm. meaning... We can get away with caring more about ego, caring more about what others think of us, and trying to, you know, put on a facade to give ourselves a good reputation, to be liked, to be admired, you know, to be seen as someone who doesn't make mistakes, which of course is nonsense, we all make mistakes, like that we can get away with putting that first and the things that we are not learning as a result can remain invisible to us and to others. But so we we never have the alternate path. agree like we, we don't have easy access to what how good we could have been were we more willing to learn from our failures, you know more willing to own up to our mistakes. And we often don't get very good data on you know whether someone actually doesn't like you very much because you're coming across as a know-it all or as a flawless, person. And we instinctively don't really like those people. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to be those people, but we don't like those people. So there's a a kind of tension that's there all along. Now, in the modern human, our survival is much more dependent on sort of getting other people to, you know, approve of us and, you know, hire us, keep us in the family, what have you, than it is, you know, on a desert island, we probably, you're right, we would not do very well, right? Because we, we aren't, good enough at learning from the mishaps to kind of quickly course correct and, and get on to the new thing. And I shouldn't say we collectively, all of us, right? Because there, this is another one of those factors for which there is significant variance, right?
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: some people are much better than others. You know, Thomas Edison famously said, I haven't failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work, which sounds like a very cheerful, and I think it, we have to Except that it was a rather cheerful acceptance of the things that didn't work because the passion and the excitement about discovering the things
0: that do work is so strong. Right. So part of that's about seeking out failure in your individual endeavors, part of it's about seeking out, you know, feedback, right, from others. You said that psychological safety is an emergent phenomenon. I mean, sometimes you're discussing. Psychological safety within a hierarchical organization, right? Where the danger is, you, you know, that the leader shoots the messenger. But then there are other contexts where it's more of a collectivity or a, a flat hierarchy. In the hierarchical situation, is it more up to the leader to create the climate? And, or, I mean, does it still make sense to refer to it as an emergent phenomenon?
1: Yes. <laughs> yes to both. So it's, <laughs> okay. it, it, I think it's hard to argue with the idea that someone in a, in a hierarchy who has more power or status has more influence on the psychological safety. They, they have more leverage to be able to sort of change uh, that environment for others and with others. And at the same time, anyone can do and say things that will make a difference, right? By, by merely sort of asking some thoughtful, you know, earnest, creative questions, you're sort of generating that energy and that voice that, that is what we're actually looking for. And by, you know, by acknowledging your own sort of ignorance on something, hey, I, I haven't done anything like this before. would love to have your help. You're helping the whole team respond in a slightly different way because you're just you took the risk. It matters. It makes a difference. So both things can can be true. I think any one of us can make a difference.
0: You know, one of the examples that you use is this electric maze. Now, I want to know, where do you get this? <laughs> I, I looked for it on Amazon because I want one of these in my classroom. And I'd, I'm surprised that I hadn't heard of it because I would have thought that some of my colleagues would be using this in their leadership classes. But, you know, when you describe what happens there, it's astonishing, right? It really is astonishing. Maybe you can describe it and sure. then tell me where I can get one of these things. Yeah,
1: sure. You know, I'll have to, we got them, we, meaning I used them years ago at, at a company I, I worked with and then I brought it over to Harvard Business School and we here at HBS, we have about seven or eight of them. It's kind of a substantial thing. It takes a, a lot of room in your closet, if you will. It's, it's about nine feet by six feet and it's kind of, you can roll it up, but it's pretty heavy because it's got some wires in it. It's a gray carpet with a grid on it, six squares by nine squares. And it's wired up so that some of the squares make a beep when you step on them and other squares don't. And the task that you give a team is to find a a path of contiguous squares from one side to the other side of the maze that don't beep. They look identical. So the only way you can find that path is by stepping on squares to see whether or not they beep, right? And when they beep, you have to sort of step back and start again. It's a little bit of a memory task, but that's usually, that's where the team comes in. Like the team's job is to sort of collectively keep track of what we've learned, what we don't yet know. And so that, that part actually isn't as hard as you might think, but what, what ends up being hard, you know, kind of emotionally and socially for people is Um, not replicating the bits we've already learned, but coming to the front line. And of course, the further you get into the maze, you know, there's nine rows of it. The the further you get in, the more the pressure kind of builds and people stand on the front row, right? The territory where we haven't been before, you know, we just don't know. Nobody knows. And everybody knows that nobody knows. And then you have people um, with one foot midair sort of pausing like a stork Unsure where to put that foot down. Now, I mean, understandable. Nobody knows. But of course, the the rational, logical thing to do is just step, maybe left to right, right? Just step, Mm -hmm. get the data. But there's all this time lost, which ends up harming the performance of the team. All this time is lost with that hesitation. So in the debrief, you know, I ask, I ask people, and, you know, anyone, they'll generally deliver a similar response. Like, what were you thinking when you're on the carpet? You know, all those eyes on you. You know, I don't say all those eyes on you. But what are you thinking when you're the walker, you know, the pioneer trying to find that next step? And it's it's one of two things. I didn't want to make a mistake, right? That's where the hesitation comes from. I didn't want to make a mistake. Um, or I didn't want to let the team down, which is sort of the same thing. And they are misunderstanding Getting a beep with making a mistake. It's not. Yeah. It's new data, right? It's it's literally, you know, I, I I use that as a metaphor in life, a beep going forward. You know, if you've never tried something before, if it's a blind date, you name it, and it doesn't work out, it's a beep going forward, right? It's right. Never. Like the
0: beep and the non beep provide the same amount of information.
1: Right. 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 I mean the yeah. beep is simply inform it's simply data. But we are not very good at thinking of, you know, the data we didn't want the being wrong kind of data as valuable we don't we don't value it emotionally equally the way we value being right and so there's this just this aversion it's really a kind of emotional aversion and then a social stigma of being wrong and so people act in a way that's irrational and gets in the way of solving this sort of simple puzzle quickly because of that natural sense
0: well, you mentioned also that the
1: bystanders,
0: they will oh, yeah. cheer when they step on a square that doesn't beep, and then they'll kind of be oh, yeah, <laughs> disappointed. So that's reinforcing the whole thing, right? So did you ever have some Confederates cheer on no. the people that no. get, the, get the beeps <laughs> and see if that changes the behavior
1: that's a good idea that would be a lot of fun to try i mean i don't think it would take people too long to catch on with, with oh yeah of course it's just data right it's right if we want to crack this code we've got to get all the data as fast as possible no hesitation right the one thing you don't want to waste time on and in a way it's the only thing you have control over is the the hesitation time
0: yeah Well, these, of course, are situations where the stakes involved are relatively low, right? I mean, this is not a landmine (laughs) where you step on the thing and it blows your leg off. But there are situations where failure could be very costly. And the key is to distinguish. And I think one of the points that you make is that in in Silicon Valley, sometimes fail fast mistakenly means don't do your homework, right? Don't do your preparation, Right, and that's clearly an error. And and I remember I don't know if you used the Carter Racing case in any of your classes, I, right? You know, I don't, but I know it well. I use I I
1: use instead an actual transcript where everybody knows what we're talking about instead of uh, tricking them. I just use the actual transcript of the Challenger launch decision the night before the launch, and mm-hmm. and just sort of take it apart. Like what's going on here? What are people thinking and feeling? Because you can really see very clearly how the power dynamics. Start to play out, and there's no real inquiry. There's only, yeah. advocacy. you know, it's a it's a non-learning conversation.
0: Um, it's it's astonishing to me. And spoiler alert for anybody who's listening who hasn't hasn't done this, but you know, I, I mean, I walk around the classroom with a sheet of paper in my hand <laughs> that, that has like all the relevant data, and I'm like, anybody have any questions? Anybody want any more? And they're like, no, leave me alone. I'm yeah. like working on this. Right? And That's it's, right. It's, yeah. So I think you articulate how context is important. You have, by the way, I'm an aficionado of two-by-twos, as is any <laughs> business school instructor. And you have some wonderful two-by-twos in, in there that I really like. And you know, one of them has to do with safety and standards. And I think a lot of people who wow. misunderstand psychological safety say, oh, if you just allow people to fail all the time or yeah. point out failures... And you applaud it, then you're basically lowering your standards. And you know, people need to feel responsible and accountable for the errors that they make. So, how do you yeah. kind of disillusion people from that? That confusion. Yes,
1: it's such an important question. And my, my my least favorite sort of misconception of what psychological safety is is that is that it means it it means a lack of accountability or a lack of high standards, or right? it means anything goes and we're just going to be soft and, you know, wrap everybody in in bubble wrap. And it's not what it means. It means permission for candor, right? It means permission to take risks, and hopefully most of those risks will be smart risks. But um, what how I explain this is you, these are two, not in practice independent, but in theory, independent dimensions, right? There's the dimension of how much do I believe candor is acceptable around here? Is this the kind of place where we are direct and open and quickly ask for help when we're in over our head or not? And then there's another dimension, another sort of managerial or leadership dimension, which is what do we aspire to do? What are the standards? What's our our quest for excellence? Is it high or low? And my argument is not only can you have both, you, in fact, need both. And the higher the uncertainty or complexity or interdependence of your work, the more that's a true statement, right? The more knowledge-intensive, the more your your work requires ingenuity and judgment and, and collaboration, the more you are dependent on both high psychological safety and high commitment to excellence. And I call that upper right-hand Zone the learning zone. But in an uncertain world, it's the high performance zone uh, as well. And most people get that, right? When you start explaining it, it sort of is a, is a light bulb moment, right? Where there is in fact, oh yeah. Like if you think about the times you've done really well in, in at something or accomplished something challenging or great, you sort of think, yeah, I was really motivated. I really wanted to do well. And I really felt kind of unencumbered in terms of being truthful bring, bringing my mm-hmm. full self forward with my colleagues you know this is especially true for collaborative tasks
0: yeah i mean I, one of the images that i liked was the spectrum right where you go from blameworthy to praiseworthy error right and mm-hmm. you know obviously they're, they're intentional error right sabotage yeah. that's not something that's like yeah way to go that's know, really right? Bad, right but there but if you if you run an experiment where you discover something or you discover what's what yeah. doesn't work or what's not true then you know that's something that you should be praised for and and I thought by forcing people to you know draw the line I think you said everybody has a line and right. they just disagree on where that line is drawn
1: right and it's just the importance the reason I draw that that spectrum you know sort of a spectrum of causes of failure not types of failure but causes of failure like something goes wrong what could it be well you know it could be someone ran a really Thoughtful experiment, didn't work out as they had hoped, great, you know, applause. Or it could be, you know, someone just uh, sort of deliberately mailed it in, did a lousy job, and it failed. Now, we're not so happy about that one. And of course, we have to find out, you know, which one it is and then respond accordingly and help the people involved accordingly. And my main point with that is, and I'll ask people, you know, in your in your organization, What percent of the things that go wrong are caused by what you believe to be blameworthy acts? And of course they'll say precious few, right? But most of the people in my organization are not waking up in the morning looking for ways to sabotage things, right? So it's it's just that's just not the typical cause. And maybe they were too tired, et cetera, et cetera, right? But and then I say, well, what percent of failures get responded to? as if they were caused by blameworthy acts, And then that's another light bulb moment. It's like, oh, yeah, there's a gap there, which again is a gap between reason and kind of spontaneous reaction and emotion.
0: Yeah, but I think, that, you know, one of the points that you're making is that this strategy of blame shifting, right? I mean, it is a successful strategy in dysfunctional organizations, because if you, if you yes. volunteer- you say yeah, that was that was my problem. I, I screwed up, and it's almost like the leaders of the organization are like, "This is great, you know. Now I know whose head will roll, right? Thank you for offering yourself up as the sacrificial victim." And so it's clearly a dysfunctional strategy in a dysfunctional organization.
1: Yes. Well, it's or yeah. it depends, you know. It's a functional strategy in a dysfunctional organization because right. if your goal is to keep yourself safe, you know, to keep yourself being seen in a positive light rather than to serve the customer or solve the problem, et cetera, it'll work for you. But of course, no no leader of an organization wants it to be full of those kinds of people doing that kind of activity. So the operative word there was dysfunctional. It is indeed dysfunctional.
0: Yeah, one of the points you made and towards the end of the fearless organization is that everybody thinks that the problem is one level up. Right? <laughs> so you know it's like, hey, I got to do this to survive because that's what my boss expects. And then the boss will say, well, you know, I got to do it because this is what the shareholders expect. I mean, is that just self-deception? At what level can you safely try to change the culture?
1: You know, it's, it's natural human instinct. It's natural human behavior to look up, right? It may be, maybe in prehistoric times, our very physical survival depended upon say, the leader of the group, the tribe would have you if they liked us if they found us a sort of pleasant human being they kept us and we kept we were sheltered and fed right but so we i think we have this very deep instinct to pay attention to what's happening above us and oftentimes because we're a little judgmental we will decide that what's happening above us is suboptimal and they don't get it and they're not doing their part to create a you know psychological safety environment or a learning environment and i say that may very well be true and your responsibility is simply to take a look at what you can do right look down or across instead of up right because you can't easily change them right but there's so much you can do where you sit to change the little environment that you work in, I mean, that well-placed question, that, that kind of uh, compliment you give a colleague, that, that voice of appreciation, that humble statement like, I've never done this before, all of those things matter. And they you have no ability to shape the whole organization. So just shape your team and that you can do.
0: Yeah, I think sometimes in business school, we don't teach both sides of the coin, right? So sometimes we teach how to persuade, but we don't teach how to be persuaded. You know, we teach how to maybe give feedback, but not how to take feedback, right? Do you think that, you know, we need to rebalance how we are educating the kind of next generation of leaders?
1: Yeah, I do. I mean, I I think the. Leadership doesn't even exist without followership, right? So we've got to be, you know, we've got to be as interested in what everyone does to kind of co-create value. And, and you know, some people are in higher levels of leadership than others, but we're all trying to kind of create value for the customers. And it's, I, I do think we have a an overemphasis on sort of the, the role of those on the top. And all our case studies kind of tend to emphasize those those folks. Uh, so we could we could do more, but we can especially do more to keep reminding people of the things they can control, which start with number one, your behavior. That's sort of the number one thing you can control is how you show up. and even that's not easy, but it does matter, right? It can make a world of difference. And two, I think we need to think less about organizations. And more about teams, right? because organizations are just made up of teams. And every, if every team does its part, you know, whether it's developing the strategy, deciding on an acquisition, you know, building a product, designing tomorrow's products, right? Every team does its job in the most learning-oriented, ambitious way possible. The sum of all those activities will be pretty powerful.
0: Yeah, I love how you told the story about your son who was skiing. <laughs> and you you confessed to uh, wanting An to, error. to yeah. I mean, you confessed to like showering him with praise when he he didn't want that, didn't need no. that. No. So, I mean, what did you do before? I mean, you had to have done something well, before to create a son who had that hunger for criticism and for you know advice on how to improve.
1: So I should say it's it's a, it was a moment of great sort of. Awakening for me, um, and I will say, so it was it, Nick was about eight years old, and you know skiing down the slope, he said, "Mom, will you you know go, go to the bottom, go a little ahead and and then watch me come down and then tell me how I did? Sure, I said, so i I stood there and down he came. You know neither of my two sons were particularly expert at this sport, but they were keen learners. And he got down to the bottom, he said, How'd I do? I said, You did great. And he looked at me he looked at me with immense disappointment, which was like, that was the aha moment. he said, can't you tell me what I didn't do well so I can get better? And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, the kid has been reading Carol Dweck. But of course he hadn't been. I had been, Um, but I just wasn't paying attention to her very good advice. So what Nick was illustrating, and he really did seem to have it at an early age, was a growth mindset. I mean, he was always interested in, the opportunities to do better, whether that was, you know, math or, or or reading or, or you know, kicking a ball around the yard, whatever it was. And I can only say, I think I did do, I was very aware of Carol Dweck's work on growth mindset. And I did my very best to kind of emphasize process, not outcome, you know, that's, gosh, the colors in your painting are very interesting, you know, rather than beautiful painting, right, That that sort of just get the kids to focus on process so that they're engaged in the substance and not just waiting around for end-state praise all the time, which is debilitating for them, right? It's a, Because then they start to get addicted to it, and then you can't take risks. And if you can't take risks, you'll never be a scientist, that's for sure, and You also may never be a fully functional, like thriving human being. So I was aware of her work. I wasn't 100% consistent, but I think I did enough of it to nurture it. I also think with having an older brother, just two and a half years older, who just was naturally better at at things, led Nick to be a real learner.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, once you get to a certain age, I mean, you know, when you become a manager or, I mean, you're teaching in the MBA program, you often are teaching people in their mid to late 20s as am I and you know MBAs sometimes have very sensitive egos right and you know they don't like being
1: no nope, they don't want to be know, well.
0: they they don't like being uh, critiqued or disagreed with particularly in front of their colleagues does Harvard take a kind of coherent and strategic approach to inculcating this sense of openness to feedback and criticism i mean how how do you implement psychological safety within yeah. within the classroom because I find well, that like my students, they're very uncomfortable critiquing each other, you know, and, and that thing is, is, is true. You know, super, I'm super worried about them because it means that they're gonna, you know, encounter some rough waters when they get out into the workforce.
1: You know, this is so um such an important point. And I think we we do our best, I'm sure you do as well. Like we're swimming upstream, but we're working really hard at helping people learn from their own and each other's shortcomings, not just you know, showing off to prove how smart they are. Mm-hmm. and And I would say I, um, I do this in in two ways. and and one is the intellectual way, which I'll come back to in a second. And the other is the kind of experiential way. To a certain extent, the case method teaching is an experiential way because people will they are required to participate, right? They must raise their hand and offer their point of view, which, you know, may or may not be like a really great comment. And they, over time, again and again and again, they get feedback on on those comments, both by what other people say and do and also by what happens in the subsequent conversation
0: it's like a flight simulator like a flight right? simulator exactly
1: yeah. i think of the i think of the case method as a safe place to make mistakes and i do often frame it that way i will say no stakeholder no no stockholder of any kind will be affected by what gets discussed over the next 80 minutes um no money will lose hands you know no no um you know, no lives will be will be lost, especially if we're teaching, you know, cases from NASA or the hospitals and so on. So this is a place where we can experiment and take risks. So do it here, right? Do it now, so that you can internalize the principles of taking those risks and learning from failures. You're also, by definition, learning vicariously from other people's failures and successes, right? So you you get sort of good at that. But the intellectual way I try to bring in as well is um, I, I assign an article that you may know called Teaching Smart People How to Learn. It was written in 1991 by Chris Argyris, published in Harvard Business Review. And it's an absolutely magnificent article on this exact point that you raised, which is the high achievers, the kinds of young people that we teach, are sometimes the most, I mean, ironically, the most allergic to failure right? because they've had nothing but uh, success and in in that article you know he says he says something like because many professionals and you know MBA students young consultants young professionals are almost always successful they have rarely experienced failure and because they've rarely failed they haven't learned how to learn from failure and so when something does go wrong we'll all run into problems at some point, they are very defensive, right? Very good at quickly, cognitively blaming someone else. So we look at this article, we look at it closely, they recognize themselves, right? How can they help it? Because they're exactly the high achievers that he's talking about. And they can appreciate, you know, because they're not in the hot seat in that moment, they can kind of appreciate that, yep, they're in that camp. And and Ardress describes the fact that the programming they've put in their heads over time, this kind of is non, it's it's explicitly non-learning mm-hmm. and it is not going to help. It, it's gotten them this far, but it won't help them get where they really want to go. So they have to be able to really relearn how to learn.
0: I mean, do you think that there's some domain segregation? Because, you know, some of the folks who are most averse to failing in, say, their professional lives may... Participate in athletics, right, where they are failing all the time. How do people maintain those separate views of failure? Or or do they? I mean, do people who are averse to failure in the business world try to stay away from those hobbies? I mean, I I ride horses, and I fell off just the other day. And if I'm not falling off, I'm not trying hard enough, right? I mean, I know that. And you learn that from sports, Yes.
1: Well, you know, there's some evidence. I don't know how robust it is, but there's some evidence that people who participate in in sports, especially team sports, but I think any kind of sports are less allergic to failure, right? and and more just a little bit they have a little bit more of a robust failure muscle, right because clearly mm-hmm. you're if you're in sports, you're failing all the time. You're failing some percentage of the time. I there's only
0: one champion in every right, well,
1: well, I don't I'm know champion, if, you know I, I, I maybe
0: not anymore. Maybe everybody gets a blue ribbon.
1: Yeah, I say. Well, that's the problem. In the pediatric sports, they're all getting the blue ribbon. But mm-hmm. um, when once it starts getting real, not everybody is going to win. And when you learn, I mean, when you sort of have to come to terms with, I failed to win, but I still am here, and it's okay. And it was kind of fun anyway. Like I loved my sport, or what have you. Right? so you get you get more experience than the folks who've been purely academic, who oftentimes just really haven't gotten a bad mark Mm -hmm. ever, right? And then they, so they, at some level, they've, they then get more and more likely to shield themselves from failure. And of course, at some point that will catch up with you, but in the interpersonal realm is where they may be the least likely to learn because they're not going to get valid data on the impact they're having. Mm -hmm. Right. So they don't, nobody kind of comes up and says, you know, you really rub people the wrong way. You come off like a know-it-all or whatever. More often that conversation when it's happening is happening, you know, behind closed doors. And so you're not getting the data you need to really learn and grow.
0: Yeah. I mean, you talk about doing intelligent failure. I mean, should we seek out kind of the failure boundary? I mean, I have a friend who's a venture capitalist and all of his investments were successful and he was, He was losing a lot of sleep over it because he hadn't yet found the kind of, you know, failure boundary. I love the four steps or the four requirements for (laughs) intelligent failure. And it in many ways does represent the best of the kind of scientific approach. Exactly.
1: You know, if I say who does intelligent failure well, it's scientists first and foremost. It's inventors, innovators of any kind. Those are sort of the quintessential designers maybe, but here's the definition. New territory, right? It's in new territory, meaning there was no recipe that you could look up on the internet. Um, It's in pursuit of a valued goal, right? You believe there's a chance here to make progress towards something you care about and that, you know, you, you might be wrong about that, but you certainly believe that. Number three, you've done your homework, right? You're not just wildly throwing darts at the wall. You're testing a hypothesis. Uh, and number four, and this is one that's often missed, especially in your neck of the woods in Silicon Valley, as small as possible, right? Just big enough to get the data you need. right No need yeah. to waste resources on a failing course of action. It's got to be just you know just large enough to sort of find out what works in this new territory. And of course, the bonus fifth criterion is you learn from it. That's what makes it intelligent. And there's no avoiding it, right? So intelligent failures of the three kinds of failures are the only ones that are technically not preventable. It can't be prevented because nobody knows, right? Nobody anywhere on earth knows the answer to that puzzle. Well, I suppose if it's in your personal life or if you're a little kid learning to ride a bike, someone knows how to do it, mm-hmm. but you, you don't know how yet. So you've got you've to go through it to get to the other side.
0: Well, it's amazing how much these four steps line up with what I teach in my venture capital class. Because the best venture capitalists, this is exactly, right, what they are coaching their founders to do, right? I mean, you want to go out and aggressively pursue information and insight, but you want to do it in in the highest ROI possible, right? Which is really what making the failure as small as possible. As small as you need it to be in order to... Learn how to pivot, right? And I love the word pivot because it's a sort of a euphemism, right? For right. you know, failure. You fa- it's it's right. a, you know, loser idea. Oh, okay, pivot. But it right?
1: focuses on the the focus is on the next step rather than on yeah. the back.
0: Right now, the other two by two that I really liked was the one that you. I don't know Charles Parro probably never had this two by two in his book, but you he, you he has the two by two,
1: but not with the names I put in the quadrants. So he has the two by two of interactive complexity and tight coupling or Mm -hmm. tight loose coupling. And he was making the point way back when um, in the very early 80s that if you are in the zone of high interactive complexity, I mean, lots of moving parts with sort of complex relationships to each other in your system and tight coupling is present, which means that, you know, flicking a switch will lead to a reaction you can't stop quintessentially nuclear power, then that's just a very, very dangerous place to be. So you should sort of shy away from designing systems with those two properties. I was intrigued by that two by two back in graduate school because of this problem of medical error. I thought, well, if, you know, if hospitals have high interactive complexity, and they do, and tight coupling, we're screwed. But what I realized upon deeper thought is that the coupling is quite loose meaning if you write a wrong order and you're the physician and I'm the nurse who's going to take it to the bedside, there's a whole lot of room right there for me to catch and correct your wrong order or the pharmacist fills the wrong order again. There's there's usually so many steps and, and interactions that each of those is an opportunity to disrupt, right? It's not, it's not a machine that sort of makes it just happen. So, The danger zone, I figured, isn't really where where healthcare lives. So I labeled the other quadrants to try to clarify what they mean.
0: Yeah. And it seems like much of what we teach in business school is for the managed zone. Yes. Right? Um, And the negotiated
1: zone. Those two, right?
0: Yeah. And yet, I think if we were to, I don't know, survey the business landscape, those zones represent, I think, a much smaller part of the business landscape than they were in the past. Yes. It is and so, so, like, you know, Six Sigma is one of those techniques that kind of works well in the managed zone. It kind of doesn't work very well in the other zones.
1: No, you're absolutely right. And, and we just, in a way, we're still not effortlessly comfortable with the fact that we live in a volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world. Right? We act as if we live in a kind of routinized, predictable world. We act like if if you know if you walk into a a big company and you hear people saying you better make your targets or else we sort of think of that as a reasonable thing to say you know mm-hmm. rather than an almost absurd thing to say because we just don't have a crystal ball like we know what yesterday looked like but we have only a limited view of what tomorrow will look like and so that's you know it's like we have to rewire our brains a little bit mm-hmm. to be more comfortable with uncertainty therefore also more comfortable with fallibility, our systems and our own, um, and act accordingly.
0: You know, I think it's safe to describe you as a connoisseur of failure, right? <laughs> I mean, you have some great stories, right? The Torrey Canyon story, which I did not know about that story. State. But there are so many that you didn't include that you could have. I mean, yeah. I always talk about Notre Dame. You know, we go back and you find all of these little things. If this little thing was done differently, if this little thing was done differently. But I think one of the points that you make is that we tend to maybe impose too much of a cost on false positives, right? And this is one of the lessons that I talk about with Notre Dame is that I'm willing to bet that nobody in the French government sat down and did a cost benefit matrix of what's the cost of a false positive? What's the cost of a false negative? Like if they were forced to articulate the cost of a false negative, then they would have Allowed for many more false positives, right? right. But usually, you know, you get judged for the false positives because that shows up in your budget. And I think the same thing happened with deepwater horizon, and yes. you know a number of these other scenarios. It's another one of those things that I'm never quite sure whether it's human nature
1: or organizational nature or a terrifying mix of both. Um, but these it is the normal, natural, undermanaged or underled organization is subject to that bias. Whereby we do not reward false positives, you know, a a truly well-led or learning organization knows how to value the false positives, and I I think the classic example here is the Toyota Andon cord. I mean, I think many everybody's or many people are familiar with the Andon cord, which is this cord by the uh, by the assembly line that allows any team member to pull that cord when. They suspect a potential problem might affect the quality of that car, you know, and then that famously stops the line. Well, it actually doesn't stop the line instantly. You pull the cord, and then a team leader comes along very quickly, and together you look at the thing you've just identified. And if you together decide, nope, that is a problem, and then and don't pull the line a second time, the line will stop, right? But here's the magic to me of Toyota is that 11 out of 12 polls are recognized to be not a problem mm-hmm. right so only in 12 polls only one of those polls actually leads to a line stoppage which is great news because then they correct the problem and that beautiful little car goes down the line and and all is well but the other 11 are what we might call false alarms mm-hmm. most organization the false alarm is either punished or quickly bored of right but at Toyota you are praised for having pulled because it could have been something and so it's like you feel good you feel almost you know you feel heard you feel valued and so there is no diminishing of that of that desire the same is true in in some other industries um, i've looked at some rapid response teams in healthcare where again you you treat the false alarms as a great drill wasn't that a great drill everybody right we yeah. we learned how it would be if that had been a real alarm And then we go back to our desks and we're, you know, hey, we got a little few steps, whatever, right? It's all good. It's framed as good. But not because these are weird people, but because the culture and the leadership have gone out of their way to make sure we're framing the false positives as the valuable experiences that they are.
0: Yeah, and I think there's a lot of analogies to ideas, right? Because, I mean, most ideas are are not good ideas. Right. <laughs> and the, right. and right. so I, I, I talk a lot about idea culture versus complaint culture. And if you know if you yeah. view an idea as a complaint, then your objective function is to minimize complaints, right? <laughs> Which means you're basically minimizing ideas. And so, you know, I tell my students the difference between a complaint and an idea is is in the eye of the beholder. Right. And that's what I liked about how you said you gotta start with reframing. Reframing.
1: You know what? You brought up Notre Dame and I wish I had used that. You know, I didn't I didn't think of it. It's an absolutely spectacular story. And of course it's much more modern and current than Torrey Canyon, but it's the same idea, lots of little things. Yeah. I'm thinking now, I've been thinking about this a lot, because of course the book is is done, right? So I can't fix the book. But what's the value I've been asking myself in kind of continuing to collect a rich Mm -hmm repertoire of failure stories and I've decided the value is real, right? That I won't yeah. stop. Just because the book is written, I won't stop. I will keep collecting them. So send them along, right? Because yeah. they're all fun to analyze. I don't mean to be unsympathetic to the horror of some of them.
0: Right. Like the failure are, failure porn, right?
1: Right, right, right. They're they're worthy, right? They're worthy of yeah. analyzing. I think the more the more we take a cool, cold, hard look at them, the more we help ourselves avoid the preventable ones and just increase the the, the good ones, right? So the whole Silicon Valley fail fast fell fail off. And it's not that it's bad. It's that it's incomplete and a little bit superficial.
0: Yeah. I mean, Silicon Valley Bank is another great example. Um, I mean, I, I think we'll learn more. The Historians will dig into it. But for me, as somebody who teaches a course on banking and we spend the first month of the course on duration – it's impossible that there weren't people at the bank who are looking at the balance sheet, saying, "Hey, this is not right." <laughs> you know, I took yeah. banking one hundred and one in school, right? And but what was preventing them from? And I don't think it was psychological safety. I mean, yeah, or it could it could have been fear? Or but it's also, I think, there's a sense of like conformity and team cohesion is sort of a more, I guess, surreptitious form of absolutely. You, know, you don't want to rock the boat. It's not like people are going to punish you but no. they're just gonna be You're like gonna well, why, why are you being a negative ned you right. know you know a, a, an executive i uh, interviewed long long
1: ago just a situation like that didn't speak up about a concern that he had around a very important decision an acquisition of another company and later on in doing this sort of post-mortem of the big big expensive failure he came clean he said i had doubts i didn't share them then he said something i'll never forget he said i didn't want to be the skunk at the picnic yeah, right which is just yeah. a wonderful image <laughs> right and yeah. it's wrong-headed yeah. right because it's it's what i would call the wrong mental model when you right. have a dissenting view you're not a skunk you're a treasure and when you're making an important decision in a team it's not a picnic right it's it's like hard work it's not a social event and and so When you have the wrong mental model, like, oh, this is just a kind of a cool in-group and I want to stay cozy and Mm -hmm. part of it, you're not going to be actually doing the job you were hired to do. But I also think that was a failure of just plain old imagination or maybe better yet, risk management process, right? How hard is it to say, hey, just for fun, what if interest rates go up? Yeah, I mean that's in your domain, right? That's not like thinking of something impossible or weird. That's very much the kind of thing you should be doing on a monthly basis. And then you do the thought experiment, and you go, "Hmm, that wouldn't work, would it?"
0: Now you mentioned this term postmortem, and you know this is something which hospitals do. Certainly, people in aviation do this, and there's been some talk of doing this in financial services. And and they also talk about kind of premortems and. Red teaming, all this sort of thing. But when it comes to postmortems, when is the right time to do it? Because you you don't just talk about the corporate life. You you do talk about personal life in your book. And I think that when there's a misunderstanding or a mistake, some of us are tempted to address it right then and there. And oftentimes, people don't want to deal with it right then and there. They want to kind of deal with it later. But then later becomes never. So when is the right time to do postmortems?
1: You know, I doubt there is a best answer that would cover all circumstances uh, to that question. But I think the conceptual answer is, you need a little bit of distance from it just to be more analytical and less emotional. Now, I don't know if that's, you know, a day, a week, a month, it may depend on the magnitude and type of failure it is. But the, the rule of thumb would be, when do we believe we probably have enough data and enough perspectives to get useful learnings from it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we've sort of collected the um, the people together or or what have you. And because you don't want to waste time. I mean, you don't want to wait so long that you meanwhile are at risk of producing similar failures along the way. You don't want to do it so instantly that you just have no ability to kind of think analytically and coolly about it
0: talk about the recovery window and you also talk a bit about kind of you know kicking the can down the road if you have a high Mm -hmm. discount rate but i wanted to just end with a couple questions about you know academics because we talked about what makes for good science but even in the scientific world in the academic world like we don't really reward failed experiments right they don't get published do we need to do more to reward Dead ends. Do we need to encourage? I mean, we don't give someone tenure for coming up with a whole bunch of brilliant experiments that, right. that you know, didn't work. Right? Right. I mean, well, if you hadn't been able to pivot your, you, I mean, you managed to completely reinvent your thesis. But if you had um, just ended without <laughs> the next stage, I don't think you would have gotten very far, right?
1: No, it's true. And and you know, to be sort of sober-minded about this not everyone will survive as a scientist, right? And, and because in a way, both emotionally, um, you know, emotionally, you have to learn to live with all the failures, but also intellectually, you have to be coming up with enough supported hypotheses, right? And in different fields, that'll be a different percentage. But let's just say Jen Heemstra, who I talk about as a chemistry professor, a chemist at Emory University, um, she claims that 90% of the experiments in her lab end in failure. My husband, who's a, a molecular biologist, claims that 70% of the experiments in his lab end in failure, right? And and who knows if these are exact numbers, but I think they're roughly right, um, and they're both at the top of their fields. Right? So it's going to depend, but you have to develop those sort of failure muscles. And mm-hmm. do we want to reward those failures? I think emotionally and socially yes, right? When someone in the lab has a failure, you've got to reward it in in group meeting, you've got to talk about it and go, "Wow, Greg, thank you so much. That brought all of us some really good insight. Now we don't have to do that one." And then you help Greg figure out what's the next thing that's worth trying? Like what what should we tweak? Where's the pivot here? Right? Because he can't just sit there and wallow in that in that failure. He's got to run the next thing. But you don't want to run the next thing just willy nilly. It's got to be thoughtful once again. So I think we need to reward it socially because you're you're doing the good work for the team. We probably aren't going to ever reward it, you know, with pay or with you know kudos uh, for wow, what a br- beautiful failure. The mm-hmm. way it really gets rewarded, scientists whom I talk to say is is that. or that 10%, right? That each of those failures was in fact a stepping stone on the way to some brilliant, you know, earth shattering discovery, great paper in a top journal, you know, or a cure to a disease that used to not have a cure. Those are reward enough, right? And people who are good scientists understand they could not have arrived there without the failures along
0: the way. And then a last idea is, you know, you talk about systems thinking and how important it is. Where do we teach that in the curriculum? How do we make sure that, particularly in business school curriculum, I mean, obviously medical school needs it, you know, law school needs it. I mean, architecture needs, everybody needs systems thinking. We don't have a department of systems, right? Right. I mean, I don't think we do enough. Um, I think where do we do it currently?
1: Well, you know, we often will back up in analyzing an organization to show how the the whole is more than the sum of the parts. You know, I I use the example of 3M and their, you know, literal innovation machine that they have created. And it's not just one thing. It's not just a CEO saying, hey, we really love innovation. It's sort of giving people time. It's creating seminars, creating opportunities for laboratory experiments that aren't on your regular day job, right? I mean, it's a whole bunch of things that together add up to more than the sum of the parts. We teach that. We don't do a good enough job of teaching this the simple point of every, you know, we t- we teach, you know, if you do this, it gets this good outcome. We rarely stop to say, and when, how does this outcome maybe feed back to, you know, affect the, the cause, right? We don't teach loopy thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, feedback we, loops. Yeah, and we don't think, we don't teach feedback loops very well. We also don't do a good enough job to ask people to pause and think, um, how will this affect future activities of this organization? And how will this affect other people uh, in our ecosystem? Right? So that, that sort of who else will be affected and what will happen later are questions that don't spontaneously occur to us, but, but we could do a better job of teaching that.
0: Well, Amy, thank you so much for joining me. These books, uh, again, I highly recommend going back and taking a look at the older book, right? The Fearless Organization. It's a classic. And then also this one, Right Kind of Wrong. And I'm sure if anyone has the chance, they should go enroll in one of your executive education programs because it's you know nothing better than listening in person. Thanks so much, Amy.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight talking with you.